This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello. Uh, Usually, here's where I would say joining me is MLB.com national editor Matt Myers, but I'm pointing at an empty chair because Matt is on a well-deserved vacation with his family. So it's just me today, and uh, we're going to get to a couple things a little bit later. We'll talk about measuring outfield throwing arms, which is cool. We're going to talk about why Rich Hill, the oft-injured Rich Hill, is actually a really valuable pitcher. But first, we're going to get right to our guest on the phone with us, dialing in from scenic Secaucus, New Jersey, MLB Network's Brian Kenny. Brian, hello. Good, Mike. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, you know, Brian, we're going to talk about a couple of things, uh, an interesting project we have coming up. But, uh, you know, first I want to get to, you've been making the rounds recently because you have a new book out. Uh, it's called Ahead of the Curve. It's really interesting. I've enjoyed it a lot. Uh, and I'm just going to read from the, uh, the front flap and the back flap here. Uh, the biggest proponent of sports analytics in the mainstream media, that's Brian Kenny, and also the face of sabermetrics in baseball. Those are, those are hefty, hefty titles and well-deserved, I would say. And part of the book explains kind of how you got to this point, right? So I'm interested, you know, tell the people why, why you, there's a lot of broadcasters of your generation who come from similar backgrounds and push hard against stats as opposed to really buying into it. Yeah, I don't know why. And that's part <laughs> of the reason why, you know, I became the face of sabermetrics on TV. Like, uh, I, I really was just, you know, a baseball fan and a sportscaster, you know, following this stuff and followed the advances in the industry. And oftentimes I turned around and said, where is everybody? And many times I would, you know, I mean, it was a constant through the years at ESPN just having, I was the guy that got into these arguments in the hallway with people. And I was always like, why is this being resisted? And to this day, I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's soaking through, obviously. Um, and with the new generation coming up, it's a whole different look. But, yeah, there's still, you know, a lot of the mainstream media is still controlled by those who are 50 years old and up and 40 years old and up. And those people... Um, you know, are still kind of late to that game. Um, and that's a big part of the book, too, is just getting into why we, ha- why we as humans, not just, you know, baseball people, sports writers, why we as humans have difficulty with information, when we're presented with new information that challenge our norms. And, you, you know, you, in the book you talk about trying to uh, kind of fight against revisionist history, right? Like we go back in time over the decades of just advanced thinking in baseball, and I think people look back on it differently than it really happened. For example, you say Bill James doesn't actually get enough credit for what he did with the Red Sox to help turn them into a quote-unquote smart team. Right, and that was, that's part of the agenda as well, that, you know, part of the whole thing when you follow it through and when you live through it, and that's why I did write the book saying, wait, I've, I, I have had a, a unique vantage point of this whole thing, and I did live through it. I can speak to it, and I can see how people are getting the story wrong. I, I mean, history is, is shorthand. You can see how the shorthand is, is, can go astray. And so I wanted to get it out there that, you know, early on it was, well, what does Bill James know? What could he possibly know? He, you know, he could sit in, you know, in his farm out in Kansas or wherever he was and say, you know, all these things. What does he know about 
being with a real baseball team, you know. And that was always the knock on him. Oh, that's great. Oh, Bill James, fun. And all these other sabermetricians, these guys, oh, yeah, put them in the real seat. They couldn't do it. Well, he got in the real seat. He wasn't the general manager, but he was an advisor, and he helped out, and he helped, and helped in some fashion, you know, build this superpower um, where it had been cursed for so long. And you would think that that storyline would at the very least be intriguing, and it was rarely followed up. And so it went from, oh, he could never do it for real, to, oh, he really didn't, we really didn't have everything to do with it. There was a general manager, an entire organization. And yeah, I guess you can keep going, even if he was. It's like, well, he wasn't playing center field like Johnny Damon. <laughs> All of this is true. And yet it is also true that he deserves some of the credit that he did get on the inside. And he has three World Series rings. I think that's remarkable. And I think it's easily passed over. And not only that, he has influenced countless of other people who now work in the front offices. All these young guys that have come up and kind of taken what he has taught and really spread it across the entire sport. Well, that's it. I mean, that's, that's his real influence is that he's a rainmaker and that he's opened minds. And most every person I interviewed in the book, most every single one, I'd say, where did you come across this stuff? Well, I read Bill James. That's just about for everybody. And that's the highest compliment you can receive. And, you know, I don't want to get into all Bill James worship because I bring him up a ton, but I think we're among friends here. I, you know, I write in the book, you cannot give him enough credit. Just give it, you know, give it up. Um, one person broke through, and yes, um, computers were coming uh, around right about that time, uh, and he was a relentless writer. So there's a lot of factors, and yes, uh, you know, Branch Rickey, as I write in the book, was writing about this stuff earlier, and F.C. Lane in 1913, and plenty of guys, but nobody broke through and got the message across until Bill James did. And I will say, on a personal note, I very much remember being a kid uh, sitting around the fireplace reading something like the 88 or 89 uh, Bill James Annual, and it's this big yellow book that was probably about as big as my head at that point. And, you know, even at that young age, you kind of read it, and you're like, oh, yeah, this stuff makes a lot of sense. We should all be doing this. And then it's kind of the point of the book is that we figure out these things, and then it still takes 15 years for them to actually get into to usage, right? Isn't that what's happened? Yeah, well, right. It, it, it took a lot. I mean, there, there's kind of that lag time in competitive advantage, and that's how we as humans accept information, you know, at a herd level. Only when everyone in the herd is ready and comfortable can we all move in that direction. And that's happened with, as I chronicle in the book, you know, relief pitching, uh, with uh, shifts, uh, with the live ball, and with sabermetrics. Yeah, we, everyone hears it and sees it. And, okay, let's do it a little bit of it. Uh, and then when 20 years later, everybody's doing it full throttle, whole hog. But why, you know, if we know this, if we know that's, that's a blind spot in us being humans is that we don't accept this information and buy in fully, um, if we know this, what if we skipped all those parts? What if we said, decided, hey, whatever the next wave is, let's skip the part where we dabble in it for 20 years and get right to it. I think that's where the competitive advantage now lies. And now you, you put out a couple of ideas of what you think the next wave will be. Obviously, you talk about, you know, sacrifice, sponsor, bad, and that kind of is a battle that's already been won. And then you talk in the future about we should be, you know, quote unquote, bullpenning. We should forget about the starters and relievers and just have pitchers. And I think that makes a lot of sense. And when I look at these kind of next wave ideas that you bring up, for me, the hard part isn't necessarily being the first team to try something. It's being the one who tries it again after it fails spectacularly the first time. Like, I look at the 2003 Red Sox closer by committee. Didn't work out. It was still a good idea. The Rockies kind of semi-bullpenning in 2012 also didn't work out, but a good idea. Isn't it harder than, than kind of come back from that failure to try it again for somebody else? Um, 
Yeah, I, I think the, the first one though takes takes the biggest hit. I think, and the re- you even remember them, and, and even just regular sports fans, not just someone in the industry, uh, remembers these things. You know, bullpen by committee, and you know all the Rockies failed experiment. Um, I think, yeah, yeah the, actually, I think the the hardest is the first to do it because it is so um, alien to our practices, and you and there are real repercussions. Uh, I'm fortunate enough now to work with Dan O'Dowd. And he came here straight from the front office after, you know, leaving the Rockies and, you know, kind of resigned or whatever it was, left, was offered a position, but decided, okay, I'm not part of the plan here. Let me go. And it was still fresh in his mind. And he was talking to me about it during one of our MLB Tonight meetings and saying, you know, I, I just couldn't change the culture. I could not get people to think creatively. And that, to me, was just very telling that he would have loved to do things more, but he took a beating. He took a beating from the media, took a beating local media, national media, from his own players, from his coaches. And finally, when it wasn't working at a spectacular level, then he had to turn around and answer to ownership. And by doing so, I give him credit because he put the bullseye on his back. Uh, you know, much earlier than it had to be. He could have, you know, still been blame shifting. Instead, he tried something radical and he took a beating. And by the way, that helped hasten his exit in Colorado. Now, I'm glad you brought up changing the culture because there's a, a part of the book I really enjoyed. It's about how we select managers. And the culture in baseball is to have managers who have been players. And, and you put out the numbers. You said in 2015, 83% of baseball managers had been uh, players at the highest level. In the NBA, it was 50%. In the NFL, it's only 19%. And what you kind of put out is that maybe we should stop hiring managers based on looks. And, and one anecdote you shared that I really liked, and obviously we're not going to get too far into politics on this show, but in 2012, maybe Mitt Romney was the candidate for the Republicans, partially just because he really looked like a president, regardless of what his qualifications may or may not have been. Uh, and I found that fascinating. So do you think that we are we are nearer to selecting these managers in a more efficient manner? Um, not yet. Um, or, you know, presidential candidates or vice presidential candidates. <laughs> and look, look at um, Mike Pence, right? Not Hunter Pence, but Mike Pence, the vice presidential candidate right now. I'd never seen him before. I'd never seen him. And I was at the All-Star game in San Diego, and I'm watching TV. My wife has, you know, one of the uh, news channels on. And I look, and she goes, oh, yeah, there's Pence. And I go, oh, my God, that guy should be a major league manager. <laughs> like, look at this guy. He's great looking. Like, and not only greatly, he just looks the part, the silver hair, the suit. Everything is perfect on the guy. He's not only what a vice president is supposed to look like. He would, if you were casting an actor to play the vice president, that's who you would cast. He's, he looks the part that much. And so that's how we choose people. You know, we, we are animals. We have visual cues that we respond to subconsciously. And just as we hire CEOs who are taller and we hire baseball managers who are physically large because they look like what a tribal leader should look like, if we were hunter-gatherers, um, yeah, but that is what we do. So let's try to override it with our intellect. But in baseball, I mean, we're getting there, but take a look. I mean, when I, as I was writing the book, 22 of the 30 managers fit this physical archetype of what a major league baseball manager is supposed to look like. Yeah, that's fascinating, and I'm hopeful we'll change that uh, in the future. Uh, so it's a great book. It's called Ahead of the Curve. Uh, make sure to look out for it. Let's let's jump to the present, Brian. Obviously, you are the host of MLB Now and MLB Network, and you're on a lot of the shows. Do you feel like you've kind of converted some of the uh, the regulars on the show? Let's say John Heyman, and I like John Heyman, but he's you know he's very old school. Do you feel like over the years as he's been on with you, he's sort of come around to the uh, stat thinking? 
No question. I mean, I, I, I've, I, have, I have many converts, right? <laughs> I think I came about here, and not to toot my own horn, but I, I was like a cultural explosion within these walls, first of all for the players, because they just had not been exposed to it. Uh, you know, Al Leiter, uh, Mitch Williams, Harold Reynolds, Bill Ripken, you know, for better or worse, they had not had to deal with someone who had my way of thinking. And all through their careers, everything had just been kind of validated and backed up. And I came in and, you know, there was some friction at, at the start of like, you know, who are you to question us? And I'm like, well, this is what I'll do. I'll question everybody. I'll question my own, you know, findings, but I'll question yours as well. And with the sports writers, of course, it was all, you know, the, the merrier because these guys engage in this on a regular basis. And John Heyman is famously old school. But right now, I mean, we, we, I'll give you a classic example. You want a Cespedes. You know, I'm against Cespedes because I'm like, hey, wait a second. He's not, you know, you need to be reliable. You need to, you know, get out there and, and, you know, and do your best to be healthy for the team. Being healthy is, you know, is partially a skill. It's part of your part and parcel of your hard work. And you know how I feel about, you know, makeup and playing the game the right way. Give me your production. That's what I want to know. And so, but I'm still saying, hey, Puig, Cespedes, there is some disconnect here. And there's John Heyman on a regular basis saying, oh, yeah, well, I heard you touting, you know, you wanted uh, Alex Gordon, you wanted Justin Upton, uh, you know, you wanted uh, Jason Hayward. How are those signings working out? And how is Cespedes working out? And I went, hmm, okay, you're right. John is now measuring just the production. Hey, forget about what the guy is that the guy's playing golf or that the guy has a hamstring issue and misses a couple of games. What's the volume of his production? And he has defended that with Ioannis Cespedes consistently. And I, every time I say, when do you get so sabermetric and rational? You know, and I'm saying, of course you're right. I don't like it, but yeah, you're right. <laughs> uh, well, you're doing the Lord's work in that front. And then obviously now we have now we have StatCast. And I, I've been fortunate enough to be on the show a couple of times. We talk about StatCast. And I feel like, you know, some of the players that are on the older school guys, it's like, oh, another thing I have to learn. But then I also feel like Al Leiter would have loved it if we told him maybe he had a high spin fastball. And that's why his fastball is more effective than, it, you know, the velocity would have said, right? Yeah, from the, from the very start, I've told these guys this stuff, even as I'm learning it, and I'm just, I'm still learning it. It's so scouty. I mean, it's so right up their alley. You know, I'm out there for hours uh, a night and every week doing, you know, MLB Tonight's, and I'll do MLB Tonight's a couple of times a week, and I'm out there, and these are the guys, you know, Bill Ripken, Harold Reynolds, Dan Plesak, these are the guys who will say, hey, you know what, that guy didn't made that catch look easy, um, but it was really a tough catch. Or, you know, conversely, hey, that guy died for the ball. He shouldn't have had to die for that ball. He's making it look harder than it is. Well, now we have route efficiency. Now we can measure that. And there were always saying things like, hey, that guy's not fast, but he's a good base runner. Well, how does he cut the bases? How fast does he actually run? We'll have accurate measurements of these things that their trained eyes, because they have a trained player in scouts' eyes, that will look for these things. Now you can measure them and, you know, try to see, hey, will, this, will the numbers validate what I see or will they knock it back? Uh, that, I think, is going to be a fascinating part of being a baseball analyst in the future. Yeah, I think you really nailed it with it. It's scouty because it's not like a, a weighted run created plus or a win above replacement that's kind of you know whipped up in a lab somewhere. It's just putting numbers is something you can actually see. It's in a lot of ways what scouts have been doing with their stopwatches for years, just on a much larger and more efficient scale, uh, which I think is exciting. Last thing I want to get to is um, next week, Wednesday, August 17th at 3.30 p.m., we are going to be doing something very cool at the MLB Network Studios. Uh, you, me, Jonah Carey, and John Smoltz, we're going to be doing a, uh, a saber-oriented broadcast of the Pirates-Giants game. And uh, I know you were involved with this the last time you guys did it over there, which is really exciting. Uh, so tell us a little bit about you know, what you expect that to be and how people can, uh, can get to it. 
well, we're, we're going to do the Pirates and the Giants next Wednesday afternoon, and it's really just an MLB Now version of that game, uh, which I, I, you know, I don't take for granted. I think it's going to be very cool, I think, and you know, we'll, we can have discussions about this, but I really don't want to play that up as Sabercast. You know, or here's a sabermetric view of baseball. How about we just roll out the way we do every day? You know, and except that it's you and me with Jonah Carey. So that's now three kind of hardcore sabermetric types. And John Smoltz. Hey, there's a Hall of Fame pitcher. And let's just have the discussion. Not as, you know, well, I'm a pundit. Uh, well, I'm a sabermetrician. Well, I'm the player. No, we just all have different viewpoints. Let's discuss the game that's unfolding in front of us and use our own language. So I think it is revolutionary in a sense. At the same time, I don't want to say, oh, this is so revolutionary, because it doesn't have to be. It really just is going to be part of what we do on a daily basis on MLB Now, which is let's bring in people from different backgrounds, and that includes it. I've been a champion of this cause for 20 years, bringing in sabermetricians, analysts, actual baseball analysts, not just ex-players telling stories, get them on TV, and sit them next to an ex-player. And, Mike, you've been a part of it. Like, to have you next to Sean Casey is great. To have, you know, Al Leiter, you know, out there discussing pitching with, you know, guys who was, if it's Eno Saris or whoever it is, you know, that to me is, it, uh, that makes for just a fascinating discussion and a highly intelligent conversation about baseball. That's yeah. what I hope to do. And let me say, I'm, I'm real excited to have a chance to talk to John Smoltz. I was on with him with you last year on MLB Now. And, you know, it's kind of a mixed bag. You're not sure what to get when you talk to your next player, especially one who is so, you know, legendary. And he's fascinating. He's so sharp. And he asks just all the right questions. And I think it's going to be great to really have, like, an extended period of time to bounce baseball questions off of a guy like that. And I think the more that they you know, cross paths with the likes of you um, and vice versa, the better. You know, where it's like not, where they're not looking at you and the guard is up. Instead, it's just like by the time you do uh, a, a second show with him, now you're just expanding on your prior conversations. And, hmm, and, you know, John has a very active baseball mind and has a lot of theories and is always looking at the greater dynamic. Uh, so he, but he's been right as a, from the player's point of view for a long time, being a foot soldier in the fight. So he likes to stand back and get a greater view but now it's with those who have been very educated in studying it. And I think that just it, it makes things better. Like, you know, it's all, like Buck Showalter, I always throw in Buck, has a brilliant baseball mind. He doesn't describe himself as sabermetric. And Buck, his strength in my days at ESPN with Buck, and he did, you know, two separate tours of duty at ESPN between gigs. And the best part was he never just shot down what I had to say. He would say, hmm, that's interesting, but what about this? Uh, but what if this guy was on deck? Okay, but what if there's two outs? Okay, but what if that guy isn't available and he's hurt? What if, he was just always adding context. And that's really where I think it's the best part of you know, the whole confluence is you have those who are working hard doing the actual analysis, but you have those who are in the field using it in a real-world application and getting those two together to kind of sort things out and approach problems together. Yeah, it's exciting, and I can't wait to be a part of it. So that's next Wednesday, the 17th, uh, 3.30 Eastern on MLB Network, Pirates and Giants. And uh, this has been Brian Kenny. Make sure to look for his book, Ahead of the Curve. Learn how he became a, uh, a baseball sabermetrics uh, you know, superstar from being a 20-year-old Sears security store detective, which is one of my favorite parts of the book. <laughs> follow him at Mr. Brian Kenny. Brian, thanks so much for your time. I will. I think my follow-up book will be Sears store detective, Hicksville, Long Island. There, <laughs> there, there, are, there are a lot more stories where that came from. I can't wait. Thank you, Brian. <laughs> thanks, Mike.
So that was Brian Kenny, who is a friend and he's a really important part of Sabermetrics on TV, and I really appreciate having him on. So make sure you look out for the show on MLB Network next weekend, the 17th, excuse me, next week, the 17th. Now, we have a couple other things to talk about, and without Matt here, it's just my voice. So kind of is a throwback to the original version of the show, and hopefully uh, that doesn't bother you all too much. There's just two things I wanted to talk about. Uh, you know, we have a second year of StatCast data. And one of the most interesting things is being able to go back and compare it to the first year of StatCast data. And the first thing that came to my mind was outfield arms, because I wanted to know, is it possible to improve your outfield throwing arm? And so we compared last year to this year, and I, I, I will admit that I was a little worried at, at what would come out, whether it was just noise, whether there was no reason, whether there was just a guy who's number one and improved his throwing arm for no possible explanation. And we actually, this turned out a lot better than I expected it would. So we compared throwing arms uh, between last year and this year and for guys who had at least 40 throws in both years. And we did our usual 90th percentile competitive throw. So we get rid of just the random lobs back to the infield. I would say an overwhelming majority of outfielders didn't change their arm strength by more than 3% in one direction or the other. Number one guy here, uh, at almost eight miles an hour improved from last year, Stephen Piscotti of the Cardinals. And I think that was fascinating because he was almost eight miles an hour. Nobody else even touched five miles an hour. And there's a real reason for that. He was a college pitcher, so he knows how to throw the ball. He gets up in the mid-90s, or, or he used to in college. But last year, he was only throwing the ball about 85 miles an hour from the outfield. This year, he's up almost to 94. And the big difference is in his mechanics. So when they signed Mike Leak, Mike Leak came in the spring training and said, you're not really throwing the ball most effectively. And then Piscotty watched teammate Randall Grichuk, who said, you know, you can shorten your arm action. And it, and it worked. And I thought that was interesting because there's real actionable reasons that Stephen Piscotty was able to improve his arm strength. And you sort of wonder, should other teams be doing that with their outfielders? Should they be spending more effort on outfielder throwing mechanics if you can get to this extra uh, velocity. So I thought that was cool. And then the next couple of guys, uh, a pair of Mets now, Jay Bruce and Juan Lagares, both up almost five miles an hour. And that makes sense too, because we know Jay Bruce has been hobbling around on a bad knee for the last two years and that hurt his performance in the plate. And we know that Juan Lagares had an extremely good outfield arm a couple years ago and was battling an elbow injury all last year. So I'm pretty happy that the, the three most improved outfield arms are for three really uh, useful reasons. You know, improved throwing uh, mechanics, and improved health, and I thought that was really cool and interesting. The second thing we want to get to, uh, and this was a whole lot more interesting an hour ago before he got scratched yet again, is Rich Hill. Rich Hill traded from the A's to the Dodgers, and Rich Hill still has not pitched, and uh, just announced earlier that he will not pitch on Friday either, and they don't actually have a date for him to make his debut. And the reason I bring this up is people want to know, what is the hype about this guy? It was just a year ago he was pitching for the Long Island Ducks. He's 36 years old. He's never, ever healthy. Why, why is he so valuable? And the reason is, He's kind of learned how to use his his spin most effectively, and that's uh, partially thanks to Brian Bannister, who is a coach with the Red Sox, former guest on this show. And basically what happened is when Hill was signed last year, Brian Bannister said, you have a really great curveball. You have an incredibly high spin curveball, and that's true. He is the fourth highest spin curveball uh, this year. And so he said, you should just use it more. I know for your entire life you've been using your fastball, and then you pitch off that with the curveball because that's the traditional way. Uh, maybe use your curveball because it's awesome. And so that's exactly what he did. Hill is throwing the curveball nearly 50% of the time this year. The, the next two starting pitchers, Fernandez and Nola, about one-third of the time. So he's using his curveball more often because it's got very high spin on it. And as a result, his fastball, which is only about 91 miles an hour, which also has high spin on it, it's the sixth highest fastball spin, has become much more impressive because guys are looking for the curveball low in the dirt. All of a sudden, that high spin fastball comes up right in the eyeballs. And uh, he's actually got the highest whiff percentage on his fastball of anybody this year. So I thought that was interesting. If you look at a guy who's got a 206 ERA over the last calendar year, as Hill does, 
but can never stay healthy. You have to figure there's at least something that's really elite about him, and this is it. He's got high spin, and he's using it a lot more effectively, and uh, you know, it's really interesting to see if Brian Bannister can do that with Hill, who was only up in Boston for a couple of starts last year, what is he going to be able to do with some of the other guys in the Boston rotation? So that was fascinating. I thought that was cool, and I'm happy to pass that along. So that has been the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm Mike Petriello. Uh, join me next week. We'll have Matt Myers back, and we'll have another fun show. Thanks for listening.